and welcome to the Time Traveler Dispatch. Today we're doing two different bonus podcast things. We're going to do Tiny Humans um, because I sort of forgot about doing that one a couple weeks ago. And then we're going to talk about sports. And to do Tiny Humans, we obviously have to have Julia on the show, on the bonus podcast. So Julia is here. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting. Um, So this Shrinking Humans idea, a little bit of like behind the scenes stuff is that we, you and I were working on a different project and we were batting ideas around um, about like the future of various things. And that's sort of when you were like, what if we did shrink people? Yeah, so it was, it was initially about vacations, which I, I think I mentioned a little bit in the episode that I was just thinking about like how fun it would be if like I could just go to my local park, but it would be this like adventure jungle sort of situation. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really where it came from. Yeah, it turns out like, Flash Forward is a place where we can do things like that, whereas, like, other more official, like, corporate shows were, are like, mm, that's too weird. <laughs> right. Or, like, that just, you know, can't happen. Maybe we shouldn't make a whole episode about it. But here we're like, but what if we did make a whole episode about exactly. it? <laughs> and here we are. Um, so I'm excited to hear uh, one of the fun things about when you produce an episode is, like, when we do these bonus podcasts, I also learn a bunch of stuff that I didn't know before because I, like, this is from tape that maybe I haven't heard or, like, things that you found right. that didn't make the sort of drafts and stuff. So, I'm excited to learn about this, um, and maybe we can start with the maybe more like most technical piece of the episode, perhaps, which is Sebastian's work on DNA methylation. There's some stuff that we did not include, so let's start there. Yeah, well, I wanted to start out by talking about that because we mostly in the episode got to hear about Sebastian shrinking ants, which is one of the wackiest and most exciting things, in my opinion, that he does. But he also does all this other work about DNA methylation, which people might remember from the episode is basically like a change that happens to DNA due to environmental differences, like it could be experiencing stress or in the ants case, getting dosed by a bunch of drugs, by researchers. Um, So one of the things that I found really fascinating about DNA methylation in humans is just the kinds of things that can cause it. Um, So there are all these changes that can happen like while you're a fetus in the womb that can then have lasting impacts on your DNA throughout your whole life. One of the really interesting ones to me is, like, what the weather was when you were born. Um, Which, yeah, isn't that wild? (laughs) Like, I just, I could not stop thinking about this after I found this out. So there was this one study of babies in Gambia, and there's, like, a rainy season and a dry season. And babies conceived during the rainy season had different DNA than those conceived during the dry season, which is, like, you know, we don't quite know what that means in terms of, like, you know, it doesn't, like, mean you're a slime monster now. It's just, like, a, a <laughs> change in DNA that we can observe, and we we don't totally know what these are responsible for in all cases, but I just think it's really interesting that, like, that is something that creates this permanent change. Um, there was also this study of this ice storm that happened in Quebec in 1998, And Sebastian actually talked about this because he grew up during this storm. Um, And basically, there was this big storm. And then babies that were born during that time, there was like a distinctive mark on their DNA that you could see like this child was born during this storm as opposed to like not during a huge ice storm. Um, And apparently, there's also research looking at Hurricane Sandy in New York and like how that 
impacted potentially babies that were born during that time. Um, And it's just like really interesting to me that, I mean, it's kind of upsetting in a way that like this can have such long lasting impacts on a person. Although again, we don't really know what that actually means in terms of like how it impacts you as an adult. Um, But it is something that you can see in your DNA that like this person was born during a big storm or like this person was born during an earthquake. Um, And a lot of it is due to like the stress that pregnant people experience while they're going through something like this. So part of it is not just the literal weather, but like the impacts that that can have on a person. And is it like when the fetus is conceived or is it when they're born or is it like any point at which you are pregnant with a baby, it, this can be happening? I, that's a good question. So, I mean, the um, the study in Gambia was specifically about when conception happened. But the interesting thing about it is like, you know, the rainy season is a long period of time. So a lot of those babies were both conceived and then mostly like gestated and grew throughout that time. I don't think they didn't really separate like the exact time, like if someone was conceived during the dry season and then mostly like gestated during the rainy season. Um, But it seems like basically during, I mean, it's not even just when you're a fetus, actually, like these are also changes that can happen, um, like when you're a young child, kind of throughout your whole development. So it is definitely something that can be at, yeah, at any point after conception as well. Um, Kind of like Sebastian mentioned, it's sort of like until early teenagehood is kind of when these changes can happen and like have these really intense lasting impacts on DNA for humans, Um, which can also be like when you're a child kind of like experiencing stress um, or like types of nutrition that you do or don't have access to, those kinds of things. Um, And that's a big thing that people are studying right now is basically like, are those changes reversible? Um, I think Sebastian talked about this a little bit in the episode, but like some changes are and some are not. So if you have like, we can see that kids who experienced like childhood abuse have different DNA um, than kids who did not. And it's like, is that something you could reverse or like, you know, again, we don't know exactly what those changes mean or if they're responsible for anything, but um, it is interesting to think about, like, are those permanent changes? Are they things that we could shift with, like, other interventions as well? It reminds me of some of the research around epigenetics and trauma and sort of, like, the ways in which you can, like, see the Holocaust, not just in those who um, were victims of it or survivors of it, but also, like, passed down genetically through the chain. Right. And I feel like studies of, uh, like, racism and how that influences your genes as well, um, It yeah, like, that it's something that can happen throughout generations and also within one individual lifetime. This also is going to come up in a future episode as a teaser because <laughs> in uh, a, an upcoming episode about robots – we are talking to somebody who and I won't go too deep in on exactly what it is because I don't want to spoil it. But you talks about using robots to stress, to cause stress in uh, another living thing. Oh. Um, and that that can then, you know, reduce body size. That can like have all of these different effects. And if you're using it to, say, try and, you know, reduce the impact of an invasive species that without having to kill it, that's kind of like one strategy right. you can use. And I bet you this is like a connected piece where it's like the actual mechanism by which that's happening could be related to what Sebastian studies. Right. 
yeah, it's really interesting to have like more of a view into what what is it that's changing in DNA that's making those changes happen. Yeah, yeah. And like the other thing, you mentioned this already, which is like something around diet and like, you know, obviously not everyone is the same size in real life right? like, in the world. Uh, I am a short person. I am uh, a small. I was rock climbing this morning and reminded that my partner has like an extra eight inches of reach on me. And I'm always like, Gah! You know, that's uh, really funny so because we haven't met in person. So that's like, that is news to me. I had no idea oh. how tall you were. People always say this whenever they meet me, if they've only ever known me like on the internet or like whatever, the vast majority of the time, the first thing people will say is like, oh, you are shorter than I expected. <laughs> Which I don't know what that means. Like, I, I feel like just loud. kind of rude. Like, like. <laughs> I take up a lot of space in you know right i can see space. that but then it's also like you know short people can like have opinions as well like we have to compensate funny bias. okay <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's interesting because so like in sebastian's aunt study he found this one specific gene that was responsible for it was directly correlated like 10 percent change in this gene means a 10 percent change in ant size but it's so much more complicated for humans. Like humans are not ants. We have a lot of other things going on. Um, I think like one, I was looking at this one study that just was trying to figure out like what parts of our genes are responsible for height. And they found, I think 697 different variations in genes um, that are related to human height differences. And that paper only was able to explain one fifth of like the genetic heritability of height. So that I think basically means there could be like, you know, 3000 more factors that we don't know about yet, because this really was only this was like 700 and it was only responsible for one fifth of the differences. Um, There are, though, some things that are more like the ant gene that Sebastian found. So there was this one study of people in Peru, which is apparently where, on average, people are the shortest in the world, like shorter than any other country. I didn't either. Um, It's like kind of interesting. I don't know if you've seen that like graphic that goes around Twitter sometimes that's like the height chart of like average heights of women but it's just done in a way where it's like, I feel like I have to pull this up now. It's like, it's <laughs> no, one of those graphs that's like, um, I don't know, like shady statistics or like misleading statistics. But yeah. it's basically like the the actual like axis of the chart is like from five zero to, okay, here, here it is. <laughs> oh, I I'm feel like... Now. Oh, this is why I missed the link to the photo. Okay, I think it's in this random article that I found. But, um, oh, yeah, okay, so if you scroll down in this article, there's, like, a tweet that has this image in it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. I have not seen this. This is very funny. Yeah, Um, so, I mean, the it's, like, the actual, this is the x-axis, right, where the height is. Is that the y-axis? Uh, X is horizontal, X is horizontal. Y okay. is vertical. Yeah. So the y-axis is from like 5-0 to 5-5, five, five, but the images on the chart are like a whole person. So it makes it look like, I think, oh yeah, like women in Latvia are like giants and then women in India are like this tiny little person. It's just, it's a very funny like visualization. 
of it. Yeah, this is really good. This is a great example of like why scale matters. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's also like, why did they use, like they made it whole people, even though the bottom of the chart is like four nine, I guess. Like, it's like, why did you make someone's feet start there? Because that's not how humans work. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, the choices were made on this. It's great. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I just, I feel like people might have seen that because it, it occasionally like goes viral on Twitter again. But basically, in this study of people in Peru, they found that there's this one specific gene that, like, depending on how much of this one mutation you have in this gene, it can be responsible for one to two inches of height difference, which you know, doesn't necessarily sound like that much, but considering that this other study was like 700 sites of a gene and we still don't even know like exactly what they're responsible for, this one was much more specific that like a change in this gene can directly mean like you're two inches shorter than someone else. Um, I'd so, take two inches rock climbing. Yeah, I would take two inches. So that could be like <laughs> one of the things that we can influence when we um, do this ant thing on humans. <laughs> I'm ready. Sign me up. <laughs> um, I think, uh, oh, the other thing I just wanted to mention is, like, we didn't have as much time in the episode as I initially wanted to talk about just, like, the ways that one person's height can vary. Um, so, like, people might have heard about this, but our height changes over the course of a day. So, like, you tend to get shorter later in the day because gravity, like, compresses our spine. And then when you sleep, it expands again. um, And that can create like about an inch of height difference uh, for some people over the course of a day. Um, And then there's also the fact that we get shorter as we get older, which I was looking into this because I was like, why is that? Like, I know that and it's you can see it pretty obviously, but like, I didn't know why it was. Um, So part of it is because you lose like the cartilage between your bones wears down and basically like your skeleton just like gets closer together, um, which is kind of upsetting (laughs) to think about. Um, And then the other thing is that people tend to lose muscle mass as they get older, which can also lead to being shorter. Um, But it's not just about like those sort of more biological factors because it doesn't impact everyone equally. So I was looking at this one study of older adults in China that basically found that like the more education you have, the higher income you have, the less you shrink as you get older. Um, And then also that height shrinking is correlated to all of these other health problems, um, which I just thought was kind of interesting in thinking about like how there are all of these different factors that can influence how tall we are. And a lot of them we don't really understand yet. Like there's just so many different things that play into the size that we are. Yeah. I also think of like when I sometimes think of older people who are have gotten shorter, part of it is like a hunching of like a scoliosis or kind of like a, a right. back problem where it's like less that they yeah, have that can definitely literally shrunk and more that they're kind of like bending in ways that maybe are not healthy. Right. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Well, you the thing that I remember when you when we had a meeting and you were talking about some of the reporting on this. And you told me about this Ashley treatment stuff. And I was like, I had never heard of it. And I was like, what? 
<laughs> yeah, I feel like this was also, it was like a throwaway line in an article that I was reading about, like, it was sort of like the sci-fi concept of shrinking humans, like, would this be possible? What would the challenges be? And there was just like one line that was like, of course, we could also treat people with estrogen, which is done to disabled children. And I was like, wait, what? Like, you can't just say that and then move on. Um, so obviously I had to look into it more and that's kind of how, even when I was talking to Sylvia, who's the attorney that I talked to for the episode, she was saying like a lot of people don't know about it. And she was like, how did you find out about this? And I was like, yeah, it just came up in this like random article I was reading. Yeah. Um, I sort of like to think that I'm generally up on a lot of like the conversations around disability and tech and science and treatment and like many things. So I was a little bit like startled. I was like, whoa, I've never heard of this before. I had no idea this is a thing. Yeah, it's it's very weird. And I mean, so one thing that I, there wasn't really room for this in the episode, but um, I, when I was like looking for people to talk about this, I was really trying to find someone who had like a similar experience to what this girl Ashley has had done to her essentially. Um, And I found this one op-ed that was written by this woman who basically was talking about her own experience with disability. Um, Her name is Anne McDonald, and she has basically the disability that Ashley has um, is called static encephalopathy, which is basically just a fancy word that means like a brain injury that is not going to get better. Um, So it can cover kind of like a large swath of things. Um, But in both Ashley's case and Anne's case, um, the more specific um, brain injury is related to cerebral palsy. Um, So Anne also could not walk, talk, or care for herself, which are all things that Ashley experienced and kind of reasons that were given why she needed this treatment. Um, But Anne basically wrote about the fact that she When she was young, she was put into this institution where um, doctors were taking care of her. And she spent years with doctors who could walk and talk, assuming that because she could not walk and talk, she wasn't really capable of communication um, or sort of like higher thinking of any kind. They assumed that she had like a really young brain age and would never be able to communicate at like an adult level. Um, But when she was 16, there was this new technique that was developed that basically involves being able to like point to letters on a board um, in order to spell out words. And she learned to communicate using that technique, which didn't exist before. Um, And then she was able to sue for release from the institution that she was living in. She was able to go to college and write this op-ed challenging what happened to Ashley. I, I guess I just wanted to quote a little bit from this article, and I don't, we can like not include this if there's not time, but um, it just was a really powerful piece. So she wrote, has Ashley ever been offered a way of showing that she knows more than a three-month-old baby? The only possible way to find out how much a child who cannot talk actually understands is to develop an alternative means of communication for that child. An entire new discipline of non-speech communication has developed since I was born in 1961, and there are now literally hundreds of non-speech communication strategies available. All children who can't talk should be given access to communication therapy before any judgments are made about their intelligence. Um, And I don't know, I just thought that it was really powerful to hear from someone who um, also experienced sort of her own form of being kept small just because she wasn't given adequate nutrition at the facility she was in. Um, 
And I wasn't able to interview Anne because she passed away about 10 years ago. But um, I don't know. I, I just wanted to talk about her story a little bit because it really it's a very good example to me of how doctors and able-bodied people in general can be just like really bad at figuring out what disabled people are capable of. Um, and if someone doesn't communicate in the way that we're used to, we might assume that they can't communicate at all when really there could be some other way that we just don't know about yet or haven't figured out yet. This comes up all the time in autism because there are a number of nonverbal autistic people. And for many years, people were like, oh, well, they're nonverbal. So obviously they don't understand the world around them or like they can't, you know, function at certain levels or they're not intelligent or whatever it is. And then on top of that, IQ tests, which are often used to kind of like measure some of these things. Right. Um, I think now there's much more of a sense that they are biased in all kinds of ways, but they are incredibly challenging if you're autistic because any kind of like timed test is uh, often very, very hard to do. Um, and just the way, like the, the tasks that are in the IQ test are, it's almost like if you were to try and design a test that an autistic person would fail, it was like you would design an yeah. IQ test. <laughs> like it just, it's like there's all these things. Um, and uh, I, I wrote about this many years ago for Scientific American and wrote about sort of like my experience with IQ tests, my brothers, um, and like how we all have like very low IQ, quote unquote, because like we're really bad at these kinds of tests. Um, And, you know, just sort of the ways in which a lot of people, a lot of disabled people are kind of like thrown away or assumed to be sort of like unintelligent because they don't, they can't do the thing that you hand them or like say the words that you want them to say in the moment you want them to say them. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting how there's that gap between like, I don't know, it's like the way that most people communicate or like if someone is not able to communicate in, yeah, in the same way, it's just assumed that like you're not smart or whatever. And it's like, no, it could just be that there's other ways of communicating that are also equally useful. There's a great um, book called Beasts of Burden by Sonara Taylor, where it talks about kind of the parallels between animal rights activism and animals and disabled people and sort of like she has this great chapter in the book about um, specifically looking at primates who were then taught to sign and these primates who were used in experiments who were in these labs who were sort of being treated like you know test lab lab experiment animals you know being injected with stuff sort of like pretty brutal things as soon as they were taught to sign and could communicate, quote unquote, all of a sudden in this like human way, uh, there was right. all of this outrage being like, oh my God, we can't do this anymore. And like, they were the same animals before right. they were taught American Sign Language. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about whether or not they actually learned American Sign Language, et cetera, et cetera. But like, this sort of, she points out, like, why all of a sudden, now that the chimpanzee knows a couple of ASL signs, do we suddenly think, like, right. oh, my God, we can't, like, you know, like, we and have And it's to, also, like, okay. were they maybe communicating their discomfort with the experiments before in, oh, like, primate course. language in yeah. ways that researchers just were ignoring or didn't understand or whatever? It's, like... Totally, totally. And this is, like, my favorite ever Onion article, which is a picture of people in a lab coat 
in a parking lot with cones, like orange cones, and then a dolphin like laying in the parking lot, and it says, dolphins, not so smart on land. <laughs> you know? you're just like, you're expecting these animals to like behave uh-huh. and perform in these yeah. like very specific ways. Um, I just love that. But yeah, uh, I think that's a great point. And we'll link in the show notes for this bonus podcast to that op-ed that you just mentioned um, yeah. from her. Um, uh, I see that on the next thing on the list is why we are getting taller over time. And I would like to get taller. So I want to hear why, <laughs> how to get taller. <laughs> News you can use. Um, yes. Well, so this is an interesting thing that I feel like when I was talking to just like my friends and random people about this episode, a lot of people brought up this idea that like, aren't we getting taller because we have better access to nutrition? Um, which is partly true. Um, I think like, this sort of falls under the broad category of like humans messing with our bodies in unintentional ways um, as opposed to sort of like, um, I don't know, like intentional height changes. Um, So I think like what we eat and how much we eat is a big thing. And again, it's kind of like this key period from birth to around 13 years old where like the amount of nutrition that you get can have these lasting impacts on your height for your whole life. Um, there can be some catch-up growth. So like um, Anne McDonald, for example, was extremely short when she left the facility that she had been living in, but she was able to grow, I think, um, like 18 inches after age Whoa. 18. Um, yeah, which is really rare. Like she still was, um, I think, only about five feet total, but there is like a good amount of um really just catch like up starving that her? can happen. In Essentially, she writes about how they weren't given like any time to eat the food. So it was like they would just give them the food and then take it away really quickly. And, you know, they Whoa, yeah. couldn't communicate with her. So she wasn't able to say, like, excuse me, I need more time to eat, um, which is really yeah. horrifying. Like one, one of the scary things about, um, you know, other people having that much control over your body. Um, but the other thing is that humans have just sort of like on average gotten taller over time. Um, it sort of varies by country as that funny chart that I shared <laughs> shows. But um, in some places, it's been about an average of five inches over the past 150 years, um, which kind of is a lot in terms of like an evolutionary time scale, um, which I think in part like a lot of evidence seems to point to this being due to nutrition, or at least, like, we know that at times when there's been, like, wide-ranging disease or famine, people have tended to be shorter. So that seems to suggest that, like, the fact that there's more equitable access to nutrition now than in the past might be part of the reason for that. Um, But one question that a lot of researchers have is, like, are we just going to keep getting taller forever? Like, if we become giants? Yeah. Like, if we keep eating more and, like, if everyone has access to adequate nutrition. Um, So in the U.S. right now, height increase has kind of, like, leveled off. So it's it seems to not be the case that we're just going to, like, keep getting taller forever or even, you know, not like giant status, but it's not like everyone's going to be six feet tall either. Um, Like there, there still is a lot of variation within that. But I think like one thing that goes along with this kind of nutrition aspect is how human height and nutrition is influencing everything else in the world, a lot of other animals as well. Um, One thing that came up when I was researching this episode that I thought was just, I mean, it makes sense, but I had never thought about it before, which is basically that 
were sort of like making a lot of plants and animals smaller by taking away and eating all the big ones because that's like what people want to buy and there's sort of this bias in farming and agriculture towards having bigger vegetables and um, one of the examples that came up in an article I was reading was fish. Um, so this researcher was talking about how like fish are bred and then it's like all the largest fish are removed to be eaten and then they sort of keep breeding within that same gene pool. And that means that the fish tend to get smaller over time because the smaller fish are the ones that are actually left. Um, I think a lot of times we think about how like agriculture breeds things to be bigger but this was sort of interesting to me that like in some ways the bias towards eating bigger foods can actually make things smaller because we're taking away all the big ones this um, is called this has a name in marine ecology it's called shifting baselines um, wow and uh there's it's a it's a problem for a variety of reasons a for like the health of the ecosystem but the thing that it also points out is like we only started keeping track of the size of fish when we started fishing things. And, you know, when you look at, like, the baseline of average size, because we keep making things smaller mm. and smaller, you have a shift in the baseline. And so it used to be probably that fish were even bigger than we know. Um, but also it means that sometimes you lose sight of just how bad the problem is because the average keeps shifting smaller and smaller. And you can kind of lose sight of some of yeah. the, like, impact the real impacts of the of fishing there's um <clears throat> i think i have a book on my shelf called shifting baselines wow. um, that is about like marine ecology hold on let me see if I can... <laughs> Bookshelves are organized in no order, so I did not find it. <laughs> um, but I know I own it. It's by, um, oh, I think it's by Polly. Hold on, I'm going to look this up. Let me see if I got yeah, that right. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. Daniel Polly. Um, uh, he's a marine ecologist. He's actually been on Flash Forward before. Um, and he, he has a whole TED Talk about the ocean's shifting baseline, and I believe that is what his book is called. Wow. Anyway. Yeah, well, Fun the, fact. <laughs> I feel like the other, I guess that sort of like the initial way that I got interested in this whole idea is sort of the larger evolutionary timescale of how humans have impacted animal size. Um, this is actually why I was initially interested in talking to Jonathan, and then there didn't end up being room for this in the episode. But one of the big things that he studied recently is how human interaction with animals has changed animal size. So he did this study with two other researchers. Um, let me actually find, oh, why didn't that load? Okay, never mind. Well, he wanted to like specify that he did this research with two other researchers because they focus on like land animals, which is what this paper was about. And he focuses mostly on uh, marine animals. But basically it found that from around the time that humans, that we know humans were in each area of the world, in those areas, there started to be a bias towards larger animals going extinct more quickly, which then sort of reduced the average size of animals. Um, so I think like one thing that's interesting about that to me is that we've been having these impacts basically since humans have existed, um, at least since modern humans have existed. And this is actually still something that's going on. So in the paper, they predicted that if the trend 
continues. I think it was in like 200 years. Um, the largest mammal would be like the size of a cow, um, which is like very different from, I don't know if you think of like a woolly mammoth or something um, a long time ago. And it's basically been this continuing trend that like there's a bias for larger land mammals to go extinct more than smaller ones. And that seems to have something to do with humans. Um Another thing that's interesting and kind of sad is that that trend has become less pronounced more recently. And a lot of people think it's because humans are now not just impacting animals by like hunting them, but also by climate change and like infringing on their habitats. And there's like all of these other things that can impact smaller animals as well. Um, So this bias is still there, but it's a little bit less prominent. And that is probably because we are also killing smaller animals at an equal rate now, or, you know, more similar rate. Um, yeah. Good job, us. <laughs> nice work. Great work, humans. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it does, It we talked about this on the um, human, like the uh, light pollution episode, right? The ways in which human light and just activity changes nocturnal animals, and sort right. of like the ways yeah. that they move around and that you don't even have to see animals on your hike or in your yard to be like directly impacting them because they can sense you from a million right. miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is all the stuff that we did not include in the Shrinking People episode. Um, and now we're going to talk about sports. <laughs> uh, as you heard at the top of this past week's episode, the cat is fully out of the bag um, on the next phase of Flash Forward. And, I, you know, like any kind of time there's a big announcement like that, it's always kind of nerve-wracking on our side. Um, but everyone's obviously been really nice, and I'm excited to sort of see what happens next. Um, I don't – I like – I'm not lying to you when I say I'm not quite sure what it is because – Part of the point of this is to kind of take a break and then evaluate with sort of fresh eyes. So um, I'm trying to kind of be open-minded about what the next thing's going to be and not kind of decided already because I want to be able to kind of explore and see what the options are. Um, we also picked a date for the party to celebrate for the end of Flash Forward 1.0. That is December 17th. We're going to start at 5 p.m. Pacific time. I know that like not everyone's going to be able to join us. Um, finding a time that works across all the time zones that we have listeners in is incredibly hard. Um, so thanks to everyone who did the poll about the best time. Um, and the 17th uh, at 5 p.m. Pacific was the one that won both um, on Patreon and in the Time Traveler polling. So um, hopefully hopefully you can come and make it and have some fun. Um, and Julia and I are hard at work building out the event. Um, it's going to be really fun. It won't be recorded because uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it's like not going to be a traditional like Zoom event. Um, we're going to try to do something a little bit more fun, but that's kind of impossible to record. So um, it's one of those things where like, if you can make it, that's great. And if you can't, we'll catch you next time. So don't be too sad. Um, uh, also a reminder, please do update your address in the Patreon page. If you have not already, um, there are almost a thousand of you, uh, supporters and I do want to mail each and every one of you something. So, um, that's like a lot of mail <laughs> for me to wrangle. So I want to try and be as efficient as possible. And so it's really helpful if you update your address so that it's in there. And if it's not in there, I can't send you something. So, um, just make sure you check also to make sure that you're still at the address that you put in when you first joined all that good stuff. So do check. I'll put a link in the show notes again, um, here to, uh, for where you can go and update your address. 
Um, okay. Sports. Let's talk about sports. There was so much that we cut from the sports episode because um, just we talked to a lot of people. They said some really interesting things. I'm just like really obsessed with this question of sports and technology. So we have a lot that didn't make it. So um, buckle up. We're gonna get. We're gonna get into it. Uh, okay. First, modern pentathlon. So I mentioned uh, in the episode there was some controversy around this sport in the past Olympics. Um, Maybe you saw that, maybe you didn't. So here's what happened. So coming into the equestrian portion of the event, um, on the women's side, one rider was like way ahead of everybody else. But her and her horse did not see eye to eye. And if you've never interacted with a horse or a cow or like a large animal like that, if a 12,000 pound animal like doesn't like you and doesn't want to jump over these, you know, barriers, it's not going to do it. Um, There's really not much you're going to be able to do to get this animal to do it if it doesn't want to. Um, And so what happened next was uh, very upsetting. So the writer sort of freaked out, realizing what was going on, realizing this horse was like not going to jump for her. And she started hitting the horse. Um, Riders do have a crop uh, and she started hitting the horse like a lot more than you traditionally would or should. Um, And then allegedly her coach actually reached out from behind a barrier and punched the horse. Uh, And this was incredibly hard to watch. And also this scandal also has pushed the organization that oversees the modern pentathlon to kind of reconsider this portion of the event. So for many years, there have been questions around this section of the event. Like we said in the episode, these are not horses that the riders know. Um, It's a random horse assigned to them. And there have been a lot of questions, I think, in general around equestrian events at the Olympics, um, around animal safety and animal cruelty. Some people believe that horse riding is just sort of fundamentally um, unethical. But particularly in this situation where you have a horse that doesn't even know this person that is about to ride it, um, and as we saw in this case, kind of gets upset or freaks out. Um, and so there have been some – so the, the the organization that oversees the modern pentathlon has said that they're going to reconsider. And there um, there were some murmurings that they were going to replace uh, equestrian with cycling. Um, Joe, who you heard on this episode, is actually on the record saying that if he they do replace with cycling, he wouldn't compete. He doesn't think that they should cut riding. He doesn't think it would be true to the history of the sport. So while we were reporting this episode – actually, when I talked to Joe – there were just these murmurs that like, oh, it's rumored that they're going to cut equestrian. They might replace it with cycling. After we talked to Joe, um, it was decided that as of November 4th, the official body that oversees modern pentathlon um, made the decision to eliminate equestrian. So horse riding is out, but what they are going to replace it with is still up in the air. They did say it was not going to be cycling. And this is kind of the interesting thing. So here's what is potentially going to happen. So the this body that oversees modern pentathlon, they say that they don't want to replace that element with any sport that quote, falls under the governance of another IOC-recognized international federation. And what that means is basically that they don't want to replace it with a sport that already competes in the Olympics. Like, you don't want to end up sort of doubling up on another sport. Um, And that would rule out any other Olympic sport, so cycling, rowing, canoeing. It would also actually eliminate sports that the IOC recognizes but that are not currently in the Olympics. And that list is super long. includes things like karate, squash, billiards, chess. So like a huge list. So the question now is like, what is this going to be? Like, what are they going to be able to find that 
replaces it. Um, and they also say that, you know, one of the things that they want for this replacement event is they want it to be, quote, attractive and relevant for global youth and future generations, to be exciting and easily understandable for TV, and to be low cost for both athletes and organizers. They also want this new sport to be easy to learn and train based on the athlete's existing skills so that existing modern pentathletes don't have a huge disadvantage and have to like relearn a totally new sport that has nothing to do with anything that they've seen before or trained for before. And that is like a very tall order, right? You want something that is hip and young, easy to watch on TV, low cost, and also retains and uses the skills that the athletes already have and is not currently an Olympic event. Um, And so I've been like racking my brain being like, what could that be? Um, And I still come back to my proposal that I said on the episode, mechanical bull riding. I think that would be really fun. It is uh, easy to understand on TV, relatively low cost. Um, is not recognized by the Olympics. uh, And it does relate to the skills they have of riding. The one thing it doesn't have is it's probably not like that attractive and relevant for global youth and future generations. But maybe if they like made it like robot bull riding, maybe that would work. I'm genuinely, I'm into this idea. I'm going to write them a letter and tell them. (laughs) Um, I'm sure they will not go for it. But I am like really genuinely having a hard time picturing like what they're going to go with that checks all those boxes that they've laid out. It's a really tall order. Um, now, this change will not apply to the 2024 Olympics. Those games will have the equestrian part, which I think will be really interesting to see kind of like what that last gasp of the equestrian element is. But this will be in place for the 2028 games that are supposed to be in Los Angeles. Um, I will not get into talking about the big movement in L.A. to not have the games in L.A. in 2028, but we will see. Um, so, yeah. Another thing that we cut about um, from the episode was about specific technological systems that exist today that could be roboticized. Um, and one of those is refereeing decisions. So today, tech features more and more into the decisions that a referee makes. So in tennis, there's the Hawkeye system, which you've probably seen um, if you've ever watched a tennis match to see sort of if the ball is in or out. In soccer, there is goal line technology. There's also something called VAR, Video Assistant Referee, where a referee can go and consult sort of multiple camera angles on certain key calls. Um, Here's Brenda Elzey, who you heard on the episode, talking about VAR, which for a while, uh, and I guess still today, was kind of controversial among soccer fans. Some people still absolutely hate it. VAR. Let's talk about VAR. (laughs) Everybody hates VAR but me. So I love VAR, um, and partly because I think it's a recognition that refs um, can have to make very difficult calls, ones in which their lives may even feel endangered. And um, like the Brazilian Domestic League, there have been refs who have been murdered by fans on the pitch and off. And I'm not trying to portray that as a particularly violent place, but there are those instances where like imagine the disincentive, you know, in a World Cup for calling certain plays. So I feel like it does make things more fair for the people who are underdogs, who are less stars. Um, And it also keeps goalies in their space. (laughs) I don't like it. I mean, you know Hope Solo got away with just criminal levels, you know, of violations. And, you know, it's just like, it's just good to see them get theirs a little bit. But what if those calls are being made not by a human who might be bribed or biased or who might be endangered by the calls on the field? What if it was a robot? 
So the robot referee can be in more places uh, and different places than a referee could be in today. So leave aside whether or not we want to have more data, because I think that as humans, we actually thrive with ambiguity. It creates intrigue and it creates interest. Uh, this notion of, of robotic refs or empires is that they get to travel around the field. They get to be up close to the players. They can get out of the way before someone falls on them. They can see from different angles what's really going on. And in the same way that high-speed video or 360 cams or VR, AR allow new ways to view the same information, I think that this is a way that robots can help provide a fuller picture of what really happened. Yeah, and one of the great things about robots is that they're predictable, and one of the great things about humans is that they're not. Uh, so to that point of do people want to watch robots participate in sports because they're deterministic, they make the same call every time, they behave rationally, whereas a human, they've got emotion, uh, they make mistakes, they slip up, they don't see something. I think that in terms of intrigue and and getting people pumped about watching the game, I think it's better to have humans make those calls. But if you want a fair outcome, I think using explainable artificial intelligence is probably the future. The key word here is explainable. That's one of those like little words that people in this field use that actually means something really important. So we've talked about this a little bit before on the show, but right now, most machine learning algorithms are actually what's called non-explainable, which means that you like can't ask the algorithm like, hey... Why did you make that choice? Like, show me the reasoning that took you from A to B to C to make that choice. Uh, the, the algorithms cannot do that. They are what's called black boxes. Um, and so in order for this kind of thing to really work and to be accepted by leagues and fans, it's going to have to be able to explain why it came to the decision that it came to. So explainable AI lets you look inside the black box to figure out what pieces of information triggered a particular outcome. And I think what that would do in the sports world is it would shift the focus then when there's a call made that you disagree with to yelling at the algorithm and trying to tear apart what it saw that you didn't and, you know, claim that that call shouldn't have been made. Not as fun to yell at an algorithm as it is to yell at a person, I think. <laughs> You're talking to a computer scientist. Uh, I enjoy yelling at algorithms too. <laughs> you probably spend a lot more time yelling at algorithms <laughs> Absolutely. And we probably want this for all of our sporting robots, like to be able to do this, because, you know, we talked about how we want that magic, that unpredictability in athletes. And so if we're going to have robot athletes, we'll want that. But also if a robot does something that we don't like, so say it fouls another player really brutally, or it makes a choice that endangers its teammates or the fans or the ref or something like that. We want to be able to go in and figure out why it did that so that we can change it. Another thing that we cut was just this really fun um, little anecdote about the time that uh, Lionel Messi uh, did take on a robot goalkeeper. If we're talking about my favorite or what I think is like an elucidating example of why or the relationship between sports fans, athletes, and technology. I think about the Japanese game show, which had a robo goalkeeper. And this game show has ended up in many European players' contracts. I'm not quite sure how, but they go on for keepy-yuppy. They go on for all these things. It seems highly entertaining. 
I'll post a link uh, to this video in the show notes. It's worth watching. It's kind of funny. The whole idea is that the strikers and forwards have to try to score on a goalie that's supposed to have a sensor adept enough to prevent them. And one of the funniest things for me is it was very clear when Messi did it that he was told he had a set number of times. So you can watch the video on YouTube. I I sent it to Rose. I don't know what kind of licenses you need. But he tries to he tries to to do it and he the robot wins and he he gets upset, you know, and like nobody's there. I mean it's just like him, the translator, and he just sort of like you know, sulks around and then and then he tries again and then he makes it and then he and then he has to go again and he makes it and then he's he's still frustrated. You know, he's like he's like frustrated that he that he lost to the to the fake robo goalkeeper. And so he asks if he can go again because they're like, you're done. And he's like, I, I know, but can, can I just can I just try it one more time? And <laughs> I think I think, you know, I mean, it speaks to the fact that like the athletes have a similar spirit, right? Like he he actually it, he actually loves what he does. He does see it as a kind of like they all do a creative and artistic expression, even if they don't articulate it that way. And they don't want to be replaced by robots because none of us want to be replaced by robots. And none of us really want to watch robots. I mean, you know, we've had robot sex available forever and ever and ever. And people aren't just I mean, it's useful. It might be part of society going forward, but it's not your go to. I think it's similar. That's a different episode. We are doing a sex robot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like it's like I'm not against them, but I don't see it as being like, you know, this thing that everybody is going to be sort of saying, you know, I don't want a non-robot. I just want robot sex. I just, uh, even though they're probably way better than us at it, I mean, or whatever. <laughs> they are not, let me tell you. But you know what I mean? Like, like probably you yeah. can get a robot who can dunk a basketball. I'm sure you can get, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm killing Jessica Luther. You can't see this, but she's so scandalized by this. <laughs> no, I'm just going to just think about Brenda saying robots are probably better at sex than us for like I mean I guess you can program them to do they don't get tired they do exactly what you want exactly (laughs) when you want it there you go Josh also talked about this idea that these robots might not replace our current sports but they might usher in new ones yeah so I think one thing it can do is it can enable broader participation in existing sports Uh, Like I said, if we have differently abled competitors, we could have exoskeletons, we could have brainwave control, and we could play sports that are already played today, but enable more people to join in. I think beyond that, um, there are sports that can be robot versus robot. There are plenty of robots out there that play existing sports like basketball. There are soccer playing robots. I know you have those on on the show. There are fighting robots. but there may also be ways to have robot human sports. And, you know, one example that, that comes to mind, I think it's called buzzer ball. And it's a softball baseball hybrid for the visually impaired. And it's a super cool sport. You've got a, a ball that makes a particular beeping tone. And so people can identify where it is, even if they can't see it. And sighted players have to cover their eyes. They have to be blindfolded, right? One could imagine a world in which that is augmented with additional technology, with robotic players, with a ball that may be steerable. Um, and for these robot versus robot, or excuse me, uh, and also in that vein of human 
robot sports, you know, I come back to motorsport and think about the idea of self-driving racing, human-driven racing, and collaborative racing. What happens if you have a track where half of it is AI, half of it is human? You know, it, it invites a lot of intrigue and interest. How does that handoff handled? How do these systems work together? Um, so I think that there's a ton of untapped potential there. I'm probably not the person to go invent the robo-human game of the future, but you know, I know that there are millions of creative people out there who can think of great ways to apply these technical capabilities to create something exciting and engaging to watch and, and participate in. I love the idea that we might have a whole additional set of sports that only robots play that we tune into instead of trying to make like a robot LeBron. <laughs> okay, so the last thing and probably the biggest chunk of the episode that we wound up cutting um, was about Formula One. Uh, so tons of people I talked to about for this episode talked to me about Formula One because it's actually kind of a really interesting case study in how to think about technology and robotics and regulations and sort of the future of sports and equity and who we're even rooting for. I'm happy to talk about Formula One. I'm also happy to talk about NASCAR, candidly. Uh, I think that they're both really interesting. And I am a NASCAR person myself, uh, having spent a lot of time watching both sports and spending time with people on teams in both sports. It's deceptively high tech. These race cars are incredibly sophisticated pieces of engineering and testing and automation and science. And a race car is not technically a robot, probably, because it's not carrying out its instructions fully on its own, right? There's a driver, but it is doing a lot of things that the driver is not telling it to do. And in Formula One, in NASCAR, in a lot of these racing sports, uh, you win or lose largely based on the car. Now, you might be like, wait, Rose, uh, race car driving is not a sport. I would disagree with you on that. Actually, I used to think that, and then I learned more about it and started watching it and realized that I was wrong. Um, but e either way, um, this problem, this problem of like which teams have the most money and the fanciest technologies, those teams tend to win more. It's That's like a common problem, right? We talked about this in the episode, people who have access to the best training equipment, the best shoes, you know, the best swimsuits, those people tend to win. Um, and so it becomes this big question of regulation. And in Formula One, what they do is they heavily, heavily regulate. Everything is extremely standardized. You can only make certain tweaks. Everything is very, very locked down so that it really does try and basically make it such that you win or lose because of the driver's skill and not the car. In theory, people who watch Formula One and NASCAR would probably argue that that's still not true, or maybe they wouldn't. I don't really know. Um, there's still, I think, a debate there, but they've specifically crafted the rules to try and make sure that when you watch one of these races, you are still hoping or you're still rooting for the driver because that's actually making the difference as opposed to you know, that whole behind the scenes team. Yeah, I think I find racing particularly, well, different levels of racing. Like Formula One is kind of the extreme example of that. And what makes Formula One interesting is that they have this, in a sense, similar to NASCAR, in a sense, a set of spec specifications. And within the specifications, you're able to build an automobile that will go certain, a certain speed, um, using certain ideas about aerodynamics and weight and wheel size. And 
usually the, the teams with, that have the most amount of money can invest in developing their car the best. And what ends up happening oftentimes, if you look at more recently Formula One, even to a certain degree NASCAR and other kind of um, competitive racing f- formats, is that the teams with the most amount of money can build the best car. And the best car is clearly the best. And depending on different dynamics, probably most of every, they're a, a larger set of racers or drivers who could, if you place them in this, the super expensive fast car, they would probably win. So all of a sudden it gets into this conversation of that are the race car drivers as important to the outcome of the, the races as the engineers, the designers, the financiers, their aerodynamicists, or the builders. So it raises this interesting question, are we necessarily watching competitions between, you know, Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen, or are we watching competitions between a well-funded group of engineers, the designers and scientists who are building these incredibly aerodynamically powerful tools? So it's changing our perception of what it looks like. Um, even though we're so invested in the individual driver and the athlete, and we believe that the driver is the final arbiter in the outcome of the sport. And in many ways, yes, because the driver is in the car steering the vehicle to a final outcome. However, it dismisses the hours upon hours of engineering and actually I would say techno-scientific talent that has produced these automobiles to allow these drivers to drive as quick as they can. So I think we're certainly moving that in different sporting areas where all of a sudden potentially are we watching? Who are we watching and what are we cheering for? So are we cheering the individual athlete or are we cheering the car? Are we cheering the device? Are we cheering the, yeah, the, the engineers, designers, and the scientists? Um, so, yeah, are we cheering the person who brings them out the largest amount of money? I think this plays out similarly in the context of, like, English Premier League football, right? Um, depending on what team brings the largest billionaire owner to the table, they can buy the best players. And therefore, are these teams great because they have great camaraderie, they have great managers and great strategies, or do they just assemble the dream team and bring the best players to the the floor? Um, You know, this happened in the NBA. I think everyone believes that if you bring the best players in your team together, you'll win. Perhaps. But Josh kind of wonders if, like, that's the right model or if they should kind of loosen up a little bit. Yeah, well, I think over-regulation can actually hinder innovation. And I would love to see a racing series where there basically are no rules. And we have robotic car versus robotic car, robotic car versus human, whatever that may be. Um, I I think we need regulation for safety, but most of motorsport is regulated to keep costs down. And it's a question of do we leave loopholes for people to exploit so that we get to see creative engineering or do we try and lock things down so that we see fewer loopholes being exploited and it comes down to the driver? Uh, As someone who works with technology, I think that there's absolutely uh, a lot of fun in watching car versus car, you know, but as someone who likes watching races on TV, I know that driver versus driver is equally important. 
I think that it's a, a very fine balancing act to walk in terms of allowing innovation and intentionally stifling innovation. But at the end of the day, the more rules you put in place, the more people are going to try and find ways to work around them. Um, that, frankly, is part of what makes racing exciting to me. The idea that if you really do regulate, if you specify down to the nut and bolt in the angle of the wing in the area of you know, this active uh, arrow source, people are going to find ways to cheat. Except it's not cheating. It's being creative. It's finding new ways to solve a problem. And that drives innovation. So what I would really like to see is races that regulate areas that need regulation for safety, but then to encourage people to innovate in certain areas to solve big real-world problems. How do we make cars have lower drag? How do we improve the safety of vehicles using AI? Um, how do we build better driver handoff systems and things of that nature? And I think that in any of these sports, you know, these sports can drive innovation in technology in the same way that technology can drive innovation in sports. Okay, those are all the things that we cut from the sports episode. Um, next uh, episode of the show, you're going to hear part two of the robot series, which is about a different kind of combat. Um, and uh, then you'll get the final two episodes of the season and the show. Okay, that's all for this bonus podcast. Uh, we will catch you all next week. Bye.